Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Joining me is somebody who, well, there's so many things that I could talk about with you. I could talk about your famous brother. I could talk about your sister, who's, uh, excuse me, your wife, who's freaking writing on TechCrunch. I've loved for years, Lena Rao. Am I pronouncing her name right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Freaking A, dude. For like a <laughs> decade, she's had some of the best articles. When I research guests, I see her. I could talk about your your company, Rise, which basically paired people up with nutritionists over their phone to help them lose weight. Am I right? That's right. That's right. By the way, Andrew, you got the you got the ordering just about right. Usually people want to talk about my brother and then my wife. And then if we get time to it, you know, we'll talk about my my startup. Your life. <laughs> your brother is? His name is Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So he's uh, he's on CNN, joined CNN about 20 years ago now. Uh, so it's, it's it's really been quite a while, and and has been uh, you know completely completely focused over the past 12 months on everything that's been happening in the world, the pandemic. So really proud of him, all the work that he does. I get it. I would feel so intimidated that my brother was there or I would try to use him. I looked at your old material. I would think that I would see your brother's name blazoned all over the site, you know, like, <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Rise basically just showed how it could help people with their nutrition. It's beyond weight loss from what I could see. You sold the company to one medical. I'm curious about why and for how much. I'm curious about how you went from being a guy who was an employee at several great companies here in, in the Bay Area to starting your own company. And... I want to talk to you about that, how you launched the company, built it up, sold it. And I I got to tell you, I sat down and I read your book, Backable, The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You. And I thought that, I thought it was incredibly helpful because you made some, you gave some clear steps for what to do to be backable, to be the type of person that people like, that they want to put their money behind, they want to put their careers behind. God knows I've seen so many of these people here in San Francisco. There's like a thing about them. And I also love that you included tons of stories and examples of how people used each one of those techniques. So we're going to find out about how Sunil Gupta did that. Thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first few people have heard me talk about for years. I've been using them for years. It's called HostGator for hosting your website. And the second you've never heard me talk about because I've never suffered so much as I did this year with just sending out 1099s for my team. And I just switched over to Rippling and we are now going to have everything taken care of when we hire people. And I'll tell you guys later why you should go to rippling.com slash Mixergy if you've got a team of people. First, Neil, good to have you here. Nice to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Dude, how much did you sell the company for? <laughs> you know, it's, I, I'm not even sure that that's really public information. I mean, there's been, there's been a couple of articles out there. So I, I, I prefer... Not to say, but um, but I, I, you know, I would say, you know, in our in our in our baseball analogy that we tend to use sometimes, I'd say that you know we we it was a it was a double. It wasn't it wasn't a home run by any stretch. But I will say that the company that we sold it to, One Medical, ended up just really not just really blowing it blown out of the water over the past couple of years. I mean, it's just such a great company and so forward thinking and, and, and I think the timing of, of everything they, they do with primary care, there's never been a more important time. So I think our shareholders have been very happy. Uh, Wall Street Journal said you sold for $20 million. That's the reported number. Like you said to one medical before I see you make a face at me. You know what they, from what I've seen, I've now checked in with friends who've sold their companies and investors who've had companies that they've invested sell. The numbers are always freaking off. They're they're just there's no I don't I don't know why they even bother reporting on a number. Is it is it basically in the in the in the ballpark? It's 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 ballpark. Okay, ballpark. ballpark. And then the, the nice thing is, like you said in the book, in backable, 
you sold before they went public and freaking a i've been talking forever about how much i love being a one medical customer it's like you just go right in they take great care of you they don't make you sit in the waiting room they treat you like a human being you text them they yeah. respond right away you go see them uh on on the phone they they hang uh they handle it well anyway so you sold to a great company it looks like they uh tripled since they went public about a year ago right so yeah yeah and and you know what's really remarkable about the story andrew is like i, I don't know if you if you heard about how tom lee who's a physician started one medical but he it's really fascinating because in a lot of ways he used software, you know, methodology uh, of iteration to, to build a brick and mortar primary care practice. He started out as the, as a one man show. He was literally the, 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 the physician, the nurse, the front desk, the phlebotomist did every, everything himself. And as a patient would come through, you know, he, he, you know, give him, give him the service, but as they were leaving, he would make sure to circle back with them to say, Hey, he was using net, pro net promoter score to say, hey, on a, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate this experience? And if they gave him anything less than a nine or a 10, he'd ask him why. And it was as simple as that. And because it was a one-man show, he was literally then taking that feedback and folding it right in to the next patient experience. So he continued to rapidly iterate on it. And, and through that, he just discovered little things. Like for example, one of the patients said, hey, while I was waiting in the waiting room, the phone was ringing at the front desk. And just it, 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 I'm already sort of nervous about my appointment. I don't like the phone ringing. It's just one of those things. And he thought to himself, gosh, you're right. Like patients shouldn't have to hear that. So now if you go to a one medical office, you'll have people at the front desk, but they're completely focused on the people who are in the waiting room. There's, there's in most locations, at least I know of, there's no phone. The phones are in the back of, they're actually in the back of the office. Just little things like that, that just really elevate the experience. I found that too. Like they don't make you wait. I mentioned, but if I happen to show up early, which I do because I like the couches there, yeah. they'll have Wi-Fi username and password available, which believe it or not here in San Francisco, there's not always great internet connection everywhere. So a Wi-Fi connection. So you could do some work while you're waiting is killer. Yeah. But let, let me ask you about how you got here. I mentioned that you you worked here in Silicon Valley. One of the companies you work for was Groupon. I love the story in Backable about how when you met Andrew Mason, the founder, I actually sent him a screenshot of the page in the book where you talked about how <laughs> instead of sitting in a conference room, what he did with you. Can yeah. you talk about what he did and why that's so important? Yeah, you know, uh, just, to, just a little context. At that time, I was working at Mozilla. Um, I really enjoyed my job. I was working in San Francisco and, and, uh, it was a great company, great team. And, uh, but I, I'd, I'd been introduced to Andrew and, and Groupon was just at its, at its early stages, hadn't raised a series a just yet. And, uh, and, you know, I flew out to Chicago to go meet with him and what I was expecting, we, we were, we were there to talk about, you know, him building out his product team at that time, there were no product people working at, at the company. And the idea was maybe I could come on as, as their first, what I expected was sort of the, the, the typical interview. You sit down at a table, have some, have a one-on-one. -on -one. He has some, he has some questions. I asked some questions. Instead, we ended up spending most of that day outside of the office, walking around the, the local area in, in downtown Chicago, where he would point to different places, point to restaurants, point to shops um, that he had worked with at that point in time that had, that had used Groupon. And, and he would say, you know, hey, this is that person's story. That, that, that guy over there, Jim, is a baker. And, you know, Jim loved baking. He grew up, he grew up loving to learn how to bake. And that's what he's doing now, except 
you know, there's a lot of overhead that comes with being a small business owner. He has to do marketing. He has to figure out customer acquisition. He has to figure out all this stuff, but that's not what he really wants to do. And that's, and that's our role. And so we, we just, he just continued to tell me these stories of these local businesses. And, you know, in the book, we talk about this as the idea of casting a central character for your idea, casting a central character. You know, who is that one person that you are, that you are trying to serve? And I think that you know, we all know that that's important for running a business. And we, we know that's important for building products, but it's also very, very important for telling your story. That could be to early teammates, that could be to investors. Starting with that, starting with that central character story, it really, really stood out to me. When I, I remember getting on a flight right before I went back to San Francisco, I, I, I called my wife and I'm like, I, I've got to, I've got to come work here. Because you you saw the central character, which was this small store owner, and you said, I want to help them. And this is not just about offering coupons and letting people get dis- discounts. The that's a part of it. What else is yeah. it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we, we we are tempted, I think, as founders often to begin with the numbers, to begin with the market size, to begin with the data. And oftentimes what ends up happening is the central character is either neither part of our story or they're sort of a footnote. You know, one of the first people I pitched on my company, Rise, which you know was a was a one on one nutrition coaching service. Uh, one of the first people I pitched was was Tim Ferriss. I mean, he's, he was, he had just written for our body, and I and I thought to myself, like he could be a perfect sort of person to to have on board with something like this. And he ended up passing on the idea, but he gave me just a great great piece of feedback. He told me his story. He said that when he was writing the four hour work week. He was turned down by 25 publishers in a row. And the piece of advice that he was gotten was go back and rewrite the book, but now rewrite it for one person. Rewrite it with just one person in mind. And so he did. He, he chose one of his friends and he rewrote the book and it was a hit. People loved it. And it, it, the, the advice he gave me is that when I gave my pitch for Rise, I talked a lot about the growing you know, concern with diabetes. I talked about the size of, of, of this market. I talked about the number of people that would be struggling with hypertension. And then at the very end of my pitch deck, I told my father's story. And my father's story was, you know, he in his, in his 40s, he had diabetes, hypertension, had his first triple bypass surgery. And I kind of left that all the way to the end and almost included it as a footnote. And his advice to me was flip that, switch it. Talk about that central character first, get the people on the other side of the table invested in that one story, and then talk about how many versions of that story are out there, how big that market can be. Mm. And when I did that, when I made that simple switch, I could just see the way that investors were responding differently. And what happened to your dad was he went to the doctor, I think, and then he collapsed. He, what did he have? Yeah. So what ended up happening is, uh, you know, I, I was in, I was in you know, grade school at the time. He dropped me off and he, uh, he was supposed to pick me back up. Um, and in between he was going to have a stress test, uh, where they put you on, they put you on a treadmill and they, they sort of speed it up a little bit just to see how your body will react. And, you know, the output comes and they'll, and they'll sort of evaluate your health that way. In this case, they saw the results of his stress test and said, oh my gosh, like you're, you're about to, you're about to have a heart attack and we need to get you to the operating room as soon as possible. So I'm, I'm, I'm standing there after school waiting for my dad to come pick me up and, and he never does. My, my, my aunt comes about an hour later and by the time she, you know, I got in her car, he was already on the operating table. And then when he comes out of this, you said, 
Yeah. He went from being a guy in his 40s to looking like a guy in his 80s. How are you handling this, me talking about it? I'm watching you and it looks uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 never, I never get comfortable talking about this story because, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, I, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm now newly minted in my 40s. I've got a couple of kids. And, you know, I think about, you know, how, how fragile he was, you know, at an age that was you know, just a few years older than I am right now. But I, I'll tell you, like, when we left the hospital, you know, we got a, we got a piece of paper. And that piece of paper was basically lifestyle change, right? And it had, it had eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm sitting in the backseat of a car, like reading this piece of paper. And I'm thinking to myself, like, we don't, we don't eat broccoli. We don't eat Brussels sprouts. We're, you know, we're, we're Indian. <laughs> we, you know, what's the, what's, where's, what do we do if, if our, if our diet consists of things like chicken curry and, and dal and, you know, what do we do? And, and that's why having, a nutritionist was such a big deal for our family and lucky for us insurance kicked in and helped pay for somebody who could kind of really inspect our diet and help us figure out how do we make these, how do we make these tweaks when we don't eat like, you know, the, the, the sort of norm. And, uh, and, and by the way, I don't think a lot of people eat like the norm. I think we all need a little bit of customization in order to make I things stick. I also need somebody to check in with me and make sure yeah. that I'm actually following through or have somebody who I'm going to want to come back to if there is a problem. All right. So yeah. that was the idea behind Rise. You left Groupon, I think you said in Backable, because you were um, you saw that they lost the focus on the central character. You said, I see all these people starting companies. I think I could do it too. You created a spreadsheet of ideas and then threw the whole thing away. What are some of the good ideas that were on that spreadsheet? And then we'll talk about why you threw it away. What were some of the good ideas? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, if you, if you think about sort of, um, the, the life of any small business owner, right. Can you think about sort of what, what is it that they're consumed with day to day? They're consumed with how do we, how do we get customers walking through the door? How do we give them a great experience and how do we get them coming back? Right. Ultimately, those are sort of, I mean, at a very high level, those are the three sort of things. I think Groupon did a, did a, did a fine job with getting customers through the door. I think for the most part, you know, companies were very, small businesses were very satisfied with that. But to, to get them coming back uh, was a whole different story. And there were so many people out there that would buy Groupon, check out the store, and, they were, and then they would go buy the next Groupon, check out a different store for a competitor. And so, you know, we, we, I was very interested in that latter part. How do you get people coming back? Um, but you're right. I did create a spreadsheet of ideas. And one of those was, was, was around this retention problem. And I remember- How could you do it? How would, oh, how you, know, would you solve I mean, it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're taking me back, but you're taking me back over ten years ago now. I mean, a lot of a lot of what I what I thought about at the time has already sort of been has already been created. I mean, you have loyalty programs, you have you have different technology that I think that people can use to sort of track and 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 make sure that they're sort of maintaining a relationship with you. I've got to say, none of store. them have worked. Again, living here, in yeah, San Francisco. nobody. We go for ice cream and they'll ask us to put our phone number in so we could get text messages. And Cream does this. We, we just never bother with it. If we want ice cream, we get it. We ignore the text messages. And I've seen lots of different companies here get into different local stores, give it a shot, and not, no one's nailed it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's part of the reason that I, I, I wasn't really excited about it either. You know, I, I didn't pass necessarily the sniff test. This is something that would be a great customer experience. You know, I mean, I, I think it could, you could see the logic as to why uh, yeah. uh, it would work for a business, but is it really going to work for a customer? 
But you know, I, I want to answer your question because I, I did create that spreadsheet of ideas, and and I and I, I I took it to a mentor of mine, and and that mentor basically looked at this spreadsheet, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, which of these ideas makes you come alive? And I looked at the spreadsheet, and I realized that none of them made me come alive, not a single one. I mean, I spent the past few years working in e-commerce. So intellectually, that's where my that's where my mind was. I, all of these ideas were were, were e commerce related, but e commerce didn't really make me come alive. I mean, it was it was interest it was interesting, but it didn't make me come alive. And so I I took a step back and I started to think about like what am I really like what really fires me up, and that's when I started to think about you know my my story of my dad and, and healthcare and his struggle and and you know what we could do. Okay. And so you went for that. The interesting, one thing that I highlighted that it's not the interesting, lots of interesting things in Backable, but here's one thing that I highlighted. You said you went to pitch investors. You spent 80% of your time on slides and I'm an occasional investor. I'll get these slides that the, the entrepreneurs will put together asking for feedback and I give them thoughtful feedback and it goes back and forth. You said, look, that's 80% of your time on that 20% incubating your idea. You wish you'd instead have spent 80% of your time on what? Do you remember? 80% of your time focusing on convincing yourself first. Why? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was writing this book, I really thought that I was going to find a, a communication style to backable people. People who are highly convincing are going to have a certain way of speaking. They're going to have use certain eye contact yeah. and hand gestures and pacing. Yeah. That did not in any way turn out to be true. I have now studied hundreds of backable people from Oscar winning filmmakers to Michelin star chefs to leaders of iconic companies. And I, and I realize that they all have very different communication styles. Some are more extroverted and gregarious. Some are more subtle and, and introverted. You know what? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I love the book and I got to jump in with it. The best way that you nailed that was you said, look at Elon Musk. When he was unveiling the future of SpaceX, you might agree with Inc. I'm reading directly from the book, yeah. Inc. Magazine's headline that he fails public speaking 101. It's true. The guy has trouble stammering, getting out a word. He'll sometimes go off on these random tent. There's nothing charismatic about this speaking style, which yeah. is like the way you nailed it for me. You're right. These people who are who are backable, who we get excited about supporting, they don't have that that thing that I thought that good speakers would have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and you know, it's we point to Elon Musk, but I mean, look at look at Steve Jobs, who's who's I think I think held as a, a poster child for charisma. Go watch the 2007 iPhone launch. Just go back and watch that speech, and you might be surprised. It's not it's not a highly charismatic speech. You know, he he fails. I think a lot of like the sort of you know Toastmaster sort of Dale Carnegie kind of principles. He uses the word uh. 80 times over 80 times in that speech or, or go look at, you know, let's, let's take, you know, non sort of headline examples. Let's look at like the number one Ted talk of all time. And if you go look that up right now, you'll see a guy named Sir Ken Robinson who gives him brilliant, brilliant speech on education, but it's a very unted like speech. He's sort of got a hand in his pocket. He's got a bit of a slouch. He kind of meanders through his script. It's it's not it's not very Ted like, but but it's a powerful powerful speech. So here's the point: what makes us convincing is not necessarily charisma; it's conviction. Backable people 
have one thing in common, which is that they take the time to convince themselves first. I get that. Here's the part. The, the fact that they're convinced, I completely yeah. get. I see it in their eyes. They believe this. It seems like horseshit. I shouldn't say this. It seems like that. And I look at them and I go, are you just trying to snow me? And no, they fully believe that the little widget that they're putting on a shopping site is actually going to change all of shopping. If you could just give them a moment to talk about how it'll get there, they will convince you yeah. and they believe it themselves. The thing that I didn't, that I, I wanted to challenge you on is you say work on that. I wonder, do they work on that? Or is this just a thing that happens to them? Do you, Sunil, having research and talk to them, yeah. do you find that they that they work on it themselves, that they look in the mirror and say, this will change e-commerce, or do they just naturally go down this path because they can't help it? It's such a good question. What most of the people that I that I that I studied took the time took the time. So they did not, they did not blurt out their ideas when they had them, right? They, they took the time to themselves. Now, I think you're asking about like what was happening in their head when they took the time. And I, and I, it's a good question because I, I can't, I can't read exactly what was happening during that time, but what I will say, and then this is, this is the, the thing that I found interesting. And, and I, I think, I think very practical for me and you know, have been, has been practical for other entrepreneurs is that we often have these ideas that we come up with. And when we get excited about them, we want to blurt them out immediately. We want to share it instantaneously. Oh my God, you'll never, you got to sit down. But what, what, what typically happens in those moments is that at the very best, we get sort of a, huh, interesting sort of reaction. It's very rare that that the other people in the room are going to be as excited about us in that moment as we are. And when that happens, when there's that mismatch, it can actually be quite deflating. And what we found when I was writing this book is that most ideas inside startups and companies actually don't get killed inside the pitch room. They don't get killed inside the conference room. They get killed inside hallways, around water coolers, and through really casual conversations because what ends up happening is we, we sort of come up with an idea, we share it immediately before it's ready to be shared, and the reaction isn't what we want, and we sort of put it in a drawer and we walk away. And I think back to your question, Andrew, is like, like what, what's happening with, with backable people, I think, is that they, they take that time. They take that time to convince themselves first, and then they share that when they feel like it's ready. All right. Let me take a moment to talk about my first sponsor, and then I want to come back and... and uh, continue with your story. Is it weird? I'm looking, I'm, you've got such expressive eyes that when I said that, I think I saw you go, wait, we're going to do the ad right now with me here. Yes. How did, how <laughs> well, did you do, good, how did you do payroll? Too. Sorry. You're a good reader too. You read eyes really well. Thanks. <laughs> how did you do payroll, uh, when you were at rise? Um, I've got a, I've got a recall. I'm not okay. sure. Oh, interesting. Because we don't yeah. really care. Here's why I suddenly cared about it. Dude, I emailed my team this year. I swear this is true. I said, I'm paying everybody on PayPal. I can't freaking deal with the 1099 anymore. And then somebody uh, from Rippling just happened to contact me and he said, listen, Andrew, you know, there's a better way. What we could do is we handle all the 1099s. You have W2 people. We'll take care of them. If they move all across the country, we'll take care of it. I said, what about this guy? God, he works for me in London. I, I have to send him all this like money. He goes, oh yeah, we handle people even internationally. 
I go, that sounds great. That's really going to save me. I'm switching over. He said, and you know what? You ever have a problem when you onboard somebody? I go, no, it's easy. You hire them. It's great. No, what about you have to get them to sign the agreement? I go, yeah, yeah. So we use this one signature. He goes, it's built in. He says, you ever give them an email address? Yeah, yeah, it's a pain, but it's not mine. He goes, it's built in. With Rippling, there's just one button. You say, I need them to have an email address. I need them to have access to these Slack rooms, right? It's all in there and they onboard them. I go, that's great. Okay. I don't know that I need it, but all right, it'll save me some time. And then say, what about when somebody leaves? I go, oh yeah, that's when you have to hunt down to make sure that they're out of the email, out of the Slack, right? He goes, one button, they're out of all the apps and everything is taken care of. It's all into rippling. I go, dude, yes, had me at, I don't have to deal with any more 1099. I have bookkeepers, uh-huh. I have accountants, I have software. It just keeps coming back to me. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I'm going to say that's, this. For, it's uh-huh. a backable pitch. That's a backable pitch. Was it a backable pitch? Yeah, well, yeah for sure. Analyze on on their me. behalf, yeah. All right. Thank you. I'm going to say to everyone who's listening to me, do what I did. I went, actually, don't do, the, don't do what I did. I made a mistake. I went to rippling.com and I signed up because I was so freaking desperate. I forgot I had my own URL. Use my URL, please get me credit. It's rippling.com slash Mixergy. When you use that, they're going to take special care of you because you come in through Mixergy. They'll do what they did for me, a demo that will just show you all the things that you could do to onboard people and offboard them. It'll freaking blow your mind. Even if you don't switch to them, go back to your people and say, give me this. Make it easy for me to onboard people. All right. Rippling.com slash Mixergy. Oh, I freaking love them. All right. Let's continue with the story. You then go and you start to you create the app. Who, who creates the app for you? You're not a developer, right? You're, you're a product guy though. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I partner with Stuart Parmenter, my co-founder, brilliant engineer, who, I, who Stuart and I worked together at Mozilla. And he, you know, he, he joined early, early on. So Stuart was recruited out of high school to work at Netscape. Um, really, really <laughs> fascinating guy. And, and you know, so uh, when I, by the time I get to Mozilla, Netscape has sort of spun off Mozilla working on Firefox. Stuart is handling all of mobile. So he's leading the mobile engineering team. And, you know, he and I keep in touch. While I'm at Groupon, he and I are, 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 are staying in touch and we're, we're talking about ideas. And, uh, and eventually, you know, we, we were both passionate about this. Co-founders in the business. Co-founders. Yeah. Your job is to go and get customers, I'm assuming, right? You, you're you yeah. able to get the nutritionist. Yeah. The problem was, and I, that makes sense, right? You're getting them new business. They just have to be on their phones. Yeah. Got it. Getting clients was a problem. With When you're talking to investors, they want to know, what are you, what's your first instinct? And then how do you respond after you start to get smart about it? Yeah. I mean, I think my first instinct was, Hey, this is a great idea, isn't it? Like, wow, like people need this and this is a big market. So we're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to create a big business and something that's really meaningful. Obviously that's, that's not, that's not the way to pitch. And, and, and there are, there are lots of questions. You know, one of the things we talk about in the book is this idea of steering into objections. You can't just, you, you people who are evaluating ideas are, are, you know, they can't just be won over by pointing out the positives but you got to neutralize the negatives. And in order to do that, you need to steer into the objections yourself. And, you know, one of the objections that I did not steer into, but, but, but eventually learned how to steer into was, you know, how do you get, how do you get your first customers? How do you, how do you, how does distribution work with something like this? Because at that point in time, at least most healthcare companies that had gotten to any sort of scalable size were effectively B2B companies or enterprise we were talking about building a direct to consumer business. I, I wanted to do that because I felt like we could move fast. We could iterate. 
that was the kind of business I wanted to build. But there was very little evidence besides at that point, maybe Weight Watchers, that, you know, a direct to consumer business could be built like this in sort of the healthcare space. And so people were skeptical of that. How do you get your customers? And, you know, that was an objection that eventually I had to go take from, I hope they don't ask, I hope they don't ask, to steering directly into it, which is like, let me talk to you about, you know, how we have found our first pilot customers. Let me talk to you also about the three ways, these, these different sort of paths that we're planning on taking for, you know, building it out. Um, you know, and, and, and none of those answers, I should say, were bulletproof answers. But what I have found is that when you can steer into the objections of your own idea yourself, what, what happens is you win over the credibility of the person who is on the other side of the table. If you don't steer into the objections, what ends up happening is those objections end up sitting with that person anyway. It'll continue to nag at them the entire meeting. And they may not even ask. They may just dismiss the, the idea out, you know, outright and you'll never have a chance to answer them. So, you know, steer, steer directly into it. So you did eventually say you tried some ads. They at first, I don't think worked. You tried a bunch of different things. What did eventually work was realizing that there's some people like your friend who join these tough mutter type races. You start targeting them. They're willing to switch. Uh, they're willing to try a nutritional program. I get it, right? If you're, I, I don't know about the tough mutter, uh, tough mutters of the world, but I know when people start signing up for marathons, they think about their nutrition in a way that they never had before because it could make or break the event. What I'm curious about is what was in it for Tough Mudder? Did you partner up with them and have some kind of partnership deal where they get paid for sending you people? Or what were you, as you were talking to them, able to work out with them? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was we started talking to Tough Mudder, but you're right. It was it was actually other races that that ended up you know, becoming more engaged with this it was marathons around the country. It was, um, you know, we did, we did some work with the, with Susan B. Komen around this, but, but the, the point was that how do you find people who are looking to make a transformational change? And even with tough mutters, someone's got to run their first tough mutter race and they got to get ready for that moment. And that getting ready for that moment, we know didn't just include, you know, what you were doing to work out. It included how you ate. And so, you know, what we were doing is we were offering discounts to anybody who, you know, would, would sign up for the race, come, come to rise. Uh, we, we explored some revenue share agreements as well. And, you know, to be, I mean, th these were, these were all experiments at this point in time. The company is about four months old. So we're trying these different ways. And some of them are, some of them are gaining enough traction for us at least to get our early customers on board. The margins were not great. But it was giving us the data that we needed to figure out, like, is this actually working? And oh, and that's and, not great. Three, you were charging three hundred dollars a month, from what I saw in an old article. Thirty, thirty oh, a month. Thirty got thirty a month to get a real month. human being. Thirty to, a month for a real human being. Yeah. And the way it would work is, I would take a picture of my food. Uh huh. And a real person would then give me feedback on it and help me guide. And I think you would even ask. Um, do I want someone who's going to be a, like a New Yorker to me and really be aggressive or someone who's a little bit kinder? Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we all have different sort of personalities and I think that we respond different to different coaching styles. So, you know, who, who kind of, what kind of, you know, not only what kind of information and care do you want to get, but like, how do you want this person to interact with you? Um, so, you know, we felt like all of that was really important. These customizations, the type of food you eat, the type of lifestyle you live, 
to find you the right coach. And then, yeah, what was happening is you were, we, we were tracking, you know, through all of your, if you had a Fitbit or an Apple watch or whatever you're wearing, plus all the information you shared about what you were eating, simply taking a photo of what you, what you ate. We'd have somebody customizing a lifestyle for you, giving you feedback and, and sort of giving you the tweaks and adjustments. Uh, you know what? I realized why I thought it was 300. I'm reading an, an old TechCrunch article about you from seven years ago. It says typical one-on-one -on -one nutrition nutritionist costs more than $300 a month. Rise right. by contrast, I guess at the time you were offering it for $48 a month with a discount for TechCrunch readers. Um, how many users were you able to get before you sold to One Medical? You know, it was it was north of 10,000. Okay. That's, that's not huge. Why did you sell... No. To them and why do they buy? You know, Tom, Tom Lee, Dr. Dr. Lee and I had a good conversation at the time, and it was it was it was very much focused on, hey, should we can we partner together? You know, primary care was really sort of going at a at a pace where you know they were trying to figure out how do we engage with patients in between doctor's visits as well, right? How do we, how do we keep a persistent engagement? And I, and I think that as we started to compare our roadmaps. What we realized is that there was a lot of commonality between where they wanted the head and I think where we wanted the head. You know, for Rise, to your point, I mean, we were pretty early on, only a couple of years in at this point, and we and we we're trying to figure out like, you know, is how do we take this this engagement model that we created over mobile that we know is sticky. We don't have a ton of people on the platform, but what we know is that the people who are on are getting great results. Can we take this and we can we explore, you know, other areas like primary care and mental health? And on the other hand, one medical was, was saying, Hey, can we explore nutrition? Um, you know, and, and so it, it became very clear very quickly that our roadmaps are very much aligned. And, you know, I think that that just lent itself really well to like, let's talk about what it would, what would it would look like for us to, to be together. And because they wanted to continue to build out the nutrition product, but also say maybe Sunil's team can create a therapy app for us. Maybe we can do, is that right? I think it was both. Yeah. I mean, keep rise. it and create more. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's grow rise. Let's use the technology. Let's figure out, you know, let's figure out what else we need to do in order to be this platform for, for patients. All right. Your eyes are going to do this thing. Cause I'm going to take, I'm going to do another ad and I'm going to, and I'm going to think through with you this business model. And I'd love your feedback on it. So second sponsor is HostGator for hosting websites. I really like this idea of matching people up with another human being to help them achieve something, right? Um, I don't answer my email well. I've talked about this. Well, lately I have been without another person helping me. Nutrition, an app is good, but a human being is much better. I wonder if there are other areas that we could focus on like this and create these little communities where we help people. And, and I'll, I'll just go through like really out there like chess. I've gotten into chess again lately. Imagine if I could get, instead of me working through the chess app by myself, where I end up just playing like an, like not an idiot, but I keep playing over and over instead of thinking through, imagine if I could get matched with a, with a with chess coach, 30 bucks a month, the real human being will look at some of my games, give me some feedback, tell me what lessons to take and so on. Are there other models like that, that you could see where people can basically copy the rise formula of pairing you with a human being? that we can think through here, like a brainstorming session in, in the middle of the ad for HostGator. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, so it's, it's interesting because I've seen now two different, two different ways to go, right? One way is to go the general way where like you come to a platform, it's a coaching platform. You, you want to learn something 
there are coaches out there who can teach you that. So like Lyft, not not the not the car driving service, but there was a company called they Lyft. Switched they switched to coach.me well. now. Yes. Coach, I know that. Or, or, yep. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So are they are they still around, by the way? They are, yeah. I've been yeah. Uh, chatting with the founder a little bit. Okay, good, good. Yeah. And and so and I think there's a couple of others that have reached out to me that are that are kind of doing the same thing. Like you show up, you just want to coach. Um, and then you have those that are that are much more tailored. You know, it's it's it is mental health, it is how you eat, it is fitness. I t- and it's 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 learn a new language. I tend to sort of think that the verticalized works better. It doesn't mean that you can't expand into other verticals, but I've always sort of felt like focusing on one vertical, I think at a time, tends to make more sense because I don't think that the way that people yeah. think is I need a coach. I think that they say I want to learn how to do right. chess, right? Right. And so that I think that entry point is much more designed for these verticalized approaches. So what if I do this? I go to hostgator.com, right? Of course, they're my sponsor, hostgator.com slash Mixergy. One of the things that I need is like, let's say a writing coach, somebody to just check in with me to make sure that I'm writing, to look at my work a little bit, but also just be there to make sure that I'm following through and writing blog posts or whatever my assignment is. Imagine I have this whole site where writers can join up and be be these coaches. Oh, yeah. And because I'm not going to build out a full app for my MVP, what I'll do is just say, you pay 30 bucks a month. I'm going to copy your model, 30 bucks a month. I'll pair you with a writer who's going to give you assignments. You take screenshots of your work and send it over to them with specific questions. They'll respond back. And I don't even have to build out the full app at first. All I have to do is have a few coaches who are willing to do this, take money from people, and then connect them maybe through WhatsApp or some other quick connection so that they could start a conversation when they want to. And then when the person stops paying, drop them out. Or it doesn't even have to be that. I can, because of HostGator, you could even have like a private forum where they could get instant feedback. All right. I noticed, I'm, I'm again looking at your eyes. You like this model potentially, right? Enough that it's worth an MVP. I think it's worth an MVP for sure. I think it's worth an MVP. And I've always thought that like masterclass, for example, should think about coaching, like adding that one layer of coaching on top because they have the community, they have the yep. content. What if like you want to go one step deeper, right? And obviously like, you know, Serena Williams is going to be my coach, but are there, are there, you know, a couple of people who then can kind of pop in and be like, yeah, I'll work with you one-on-one. I think it seems like a natural sort of a natural jump off point. And you know what? Unlike nutrition, at the basic point for most thing, most things, what you want is just a human being to hold you accountable and to make sure that yeah. what you're doing matters. All right. So people, if you're listening to me and you want, like this idea, I've given you the formula. You can copy it for writing, for chess, for anything else. Or frankly, if you don't like this idea, take whatever your idea is. Go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. They've got great hosting packages, easy to install WordPress and so many other platforms, so many other uh, software. And frankly, inexpensive, just works. And if you use my URL, you give me a pat on the back with them. And also you'll get the lowest price that they have available. Yes, they drop the price when you go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. You know what? One of the things that stood out for me with you was the Ikea effect. I've seen that, right? You get Ikea furniture back at home because you built it. You feel proud of this bookcase, even though the bookcase is a little bit rickety and you can't take it to your next house. You feel proud because you made it. I wonder if you selling to One Medical with this vision maybe helped you because now you're working with the One Medical team to create this thing that they're buying instead of saying, this is it, it's fixed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the IKEA effect tells us that we value something that we build up to five times more than something that we simply buy. 
Right, so there are a lot of people out there that have poorly made furniture or futons that they're, they're never going to get rid of because they made it themselves. And, and I think that that really speaks to, I think, a, a human tendency, which is that we, you know, we want to we want to feel like we, 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 we mattered in this process, that we were part of the creative process. We value something so much more when we do. The IKEA effect is kind of it originates in this in this in the 1940s, actually. So even before IKEA. Um, Betty Crocker had introduced cake mix to the markets and it was instant cake mix. And they were so surprised when it didn't sell and they were trying to figure out why. Cause I mean, it's, it was, they thought it was brilliant. All you had to do was pour water into a mix and, and put that mix into the, into an, a pan and bake it. And voila, you got this tasty treat, but they realized that through the, through the help of a psychologist named Ernest Dykta, they realized that, they had made the process of making a cake too easy. They had removed the customer from the creative process altogether. And so the recommendation was, why not just remove one ingredient, just one, and see what happens? And so they did. They removed the egg from the mix. And now as a customer, now as, a, as a, you know, somebody who's making a cake, you, you cracked in and mixed in your own egg and sales took off because people felt like they were part of the creative process. So what does this have anything to do with, with being backable or innovation? And, and back to your point about sort of how Rise and One Medical came together. Well, you know, I think we oftentimes we're told or we believe that creativity is this two-step formula where you come up with a great idea and you execute on it well. But, but there's this hidden step in between. And that hidden step is where we get early people early teammates, early investors, early partners to believe in something that isn't fully baked just yet. But when you get them included in the process, when you hand them an egg and you let them crack in and mix in their own fresh egg, that's when they arrive with you to the execution stage together. And it, it always leads to better results. And I, I think you can trace every successful startup back to that, that hidden, hidden step. So yeah, with with Rise and One Medical, absolutely, we were we were we were complementary. They were handing me an egg, I was handing them an egg, and we got to make a cake together. Mm. I've noticed that there are some entrepreneurs here who do that really well. They're not asking for money. They're not. They're asking for advice, and they're not doing it because they've heard if you ask for advice, you get money. If you ask for money, you get advice. They're doing it because that's their process. And yeah. the other thing that I noticed that allows them to do is even if they don't end up working with the person. They make the, the idea they end up with that that advisor's idea too. So then like if they ask me for feedback, it's um, they, they get my feedback. They somehow integrate it in. And then a few months later, it's, hey, Andrew, you know that thing that you helped me think through? It's up, meaning yes. can you help promote it? It's up. Yes. Can you make an introduction? Now it's my idea too. How could I not support it? And how do I not support this person who I've helped now flourish? It's yeah. such a great, great way to be, but it works against our instinct of saying, I need to prove myself, my worth, my strength to everyone else. Because you're How kind smart of lowering yourself. Yes. I yes. need to feel that this investor, this person is worthy of a conversation, that I'm worthy of a conversation with them by showing how smart I am. You're yeah. saying the opposite. I am saying the opposite. And I think the example you give is is really is really proof of that. Hey, Andrew, like look at that idea you gave me, even though I, I had already had that idea. Andrew, that idea, your idea, it's up now, right? right. And, and what I found is that, that that is so powerful that it can even work when someone says no to you. So, you know, one of the things that I that I learned through the process of creating this company and writing this book and, and researching for this book simultaneously is that, you know, when someone would say no to me, I, I would I would just say, okay, and, and I kind of move on. 
Um, very rarely would I go back and ask that person, what would it have taken? What would it have taken for you to say yes? I'm not trying to convince you differently, but I would love to get your feedback. Like, what would it have taken? What I found is that backable people always do that. They're always circling back with their with their nose to get the feedback, right? Again, not trying to convince them differently. But once they actually have that feedback in hand, you can always circle back a few months later and say, hey, just by the way, that feedback you gave me was, was incredible and I, I've used it. And by the way, I just want to let you know, like, here's what's happened since then. And just by doing that, you can turn these no's into yeses. So for example, with, with Rise, you know, one of the things that I thought distribution, we talked about this earlier, was, was obviously one of their concerns. But when people started to say no, and, and every investor that I pitched for Rise said no early on, I never went back to them initially and said, why? But when I was convinced by a friend that I should do that, and I did, the answer that I got from them was less about the number of customers you have. It was more about, we don't know if these customers are going to stick around. We, yeah, we don't know what the churn looks like. And so that not only kind of architected, helped architect how I spent the next few months. And at this point in time where we're rapidly running out of runway and I need to focus on one problem to solve and started to focus on retention, right? Instead of trying to blow out the top of the funnel, I wanted to figure out how do I, how do I you know, put mechanisms in place to help people through a maintenance program. And in, then I went back to all of the investors that had said no because of that and said, by the way, thank you for your advice. Here's some of our new retention numbers. Here's how they're looking now. And two of the investors who initially said no switched to a yes because of that. Wow. And it made your business better for yeah. having known that. Yeah, it was right. It was the right answer. You know what? I, I wonder if I should be doing more of that with people who turn me down for interviews or even don't respond. And my hesitation has been the same one that I had when you in, in Backable in your book said, I went back to investors to ask them. I thought he's not going to get a response in reality. And you acknowledged it. Most people, I think you said most people didn't respond, but a few did and it was helpful. If I even come back to people who I've asked to do an interview, if the vast majority don't say no, don't say why they said no, a handful is even helpful for getting feedback. And it, does, it doesn't seem needy to say, tell me why you didn't like me. I don't think it seems needy. I think there's a right way to do it. I don't think, you know, you know it's not a, if someone says, hey, Andrew, I'm not interested in doing your show. I don't think the response is, you know, why? I think it's more kind of like totally respect it. Um, I think you probably, you probably pressed for time, but, you know, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to understand a little more about how to attract good guests to the show. And I'd love your feedback. Like, you know, what, what do you think down the line might be the way that I, you know, that, that you say yes, or, or, you know, what types of shows are you interested in doing? You know, I think there's a way of getting at the signal that you're looking at rather than trying to make somebody feel bad or necessarily trying to change their mind. I'm looking at the people who you eventually raise money from. Do you raise $2.3 million in seed funding? Got Floodgate, Cowboy Ventures, Google Ventures, Greylock, right? Yeah. Impressive yeah. group of people, dude. I would have I would have thought, frankly, that because your brother is Dr. Sanjay Gupta from CNN, that you would have just been able to walk in, and because you worked for, for for Mozilla, for Groupon, that you would have been able to walk in and get funding. The majority of the stories in Backable were about the difficulty of raising money. Why do you think it was so hard for you to raise money? Why was that not enough? Yeah, I mean, good. I mean, I, 
I guess I was, I was, I had an expectation that I was going to be able to raise money as well. Um, but I wasn't. And I think that, you know, to answer your question, why was it hard? I think it was a good idea, poorly explained. I didn't know how to, how to really talk about this in a way that got people, got people excited. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, Andrew, you talking about talking about Sanjay. I'm going to tell you this really quick story, and then we'll, we'll we'll jump right back into this. But like, because you brought Sanjay up a couple of times now, I got to tell you the story. I was in I was in um, a couple of years ago. I I moved back to my hometown in Michigan to run for office, run for public office. I was living in San Francisco, moved back to Michigan, and you know, for the past 15 years or so, it's, I've I've been used to people sort of coming up to my brother and me when we're walking together and asking for a photo. Right. And asking for a photo of him with them. And then usually it's like, Hey, would you, would you mind taking that photo? <laughs> and, and a couple of years ago for the first time, while I was, while I was in the middle of my campaign, this guy comes up to me, yeah, he's about 16 years old, teenager. And he's like, Hey, can I get a photo? And it's just me. And I'm like, Oh, okay, sure. And so, you know, we get into selfie mode and he's got his, he's got his camera out, his arms stretched out. And right before he's about to, 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 to snap the photo, he yells out to his friend. He's like, yo, Chris, get in, come here, get in this photo with Dr. Sanjay Gupta's brother. Wow. <laughs> At least you're getting a step forward. You're not being asked to take the photo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, I mean, it, the, the, the punchline is that it wasn't, it wasn't easy. And again, I don't think it was because it was a bad idea. I think Rise, you know, uh, had a, I think had a lot of promise, and I think it was it was you know starting to get into the right time. People were starting to use their mobile phones in a way that uh, I think made sense for healthcare. Um, but I think it was just a very poorly at that time very poorly explained idea. Again, I spent way too much time talking about the numbers and talking about the market size not enough time talking about the objections, the potential objections to this and getting ahead of things like distribution and retention um, that all ended up sort of being the lessons that I learned, which turned it into, you know, the pitch that you're talking about that raised the money. All right. I promised people that we would tell your story and then we'd get into the ideas in the book, but I have to tell you, I think one of the, th one of the things I've worked on for years at Mixergy is telling a story that embeds the lessons in it so we don't have to cram them down people's throats. Maybe what I should do is just go over some of the things that we've covered. We talked about the, the main character, right? For Andrew Mason, a Groupon, it was, yeah. this, it was a small store owner. For you, it was your dad. You tell a great story about Dollar Shave Club and how they stopped talking about the economics of shaving and instead went into their main character. You talk about that in the book. We talked about um, bringing people in, I forget how you express it, co-creating with other people. Oh, flipping, what is it called uh, in the book? Flipping outsiders to insiders flip outsiders into insiders. So now they're, they're not being presented with the idea. They're on the inside helping to make the idea. We talked about how people who are, who are backable are good at, they're convinced themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. We talked that, about how you did needed to do that. Yeah. I think backable people take the time to convince themselves first, and then they let that conviction shine through whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. And backable people go back in and find out why someone turned them down to mm -hmm. improve and to stay connected with them. There, there are others. There are seven key steps. Is there one that you feel like I, you wish that I'd included, but I didn't? Yeah. You know, let's talk a little bit about the earned secret because this is something that oh, I think yeah, about. Yeah, I love that. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's something that I, I, I think about myself quite a bit, which is, you know, that, that, you know, how do you find and share something that you learned through firsthand experience? It's something that, um, you know, you, you went out and discovered because I, I have found that great ideas are based on, you know, surprising insights, little things that you, that you, that you were able to discover. I'll tell you a story. I was, I was in um, the, the waiting room of, of Brian Grazier, who's this Hollywood producer, but he also invests in startups and he runs big companies. And, you know, there were all these people that were waiting to pitch him on their, on their idea. And you could just tell the anxiety in the room, the anxiety in this waiting room is pretty high. And so when I went back to go see him, I, I asked him, I said, Hey, if I could go out there and give everybody one piece of advice, what would it be? And he thinks about it for a moment and he says, you know, I want you to tell me something that I couldn't easily find on Google. Give me something that isn't like easily Googleable." And I thought it was so interesting because as I, st I started talking to more and more backers, people who are making decisions, I began to hear uh, largely the same thing. Like, give me an insight. Give me something that you haven't found that, 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 is, that most people who are going to be in your shoes aren't going to already tell me, right? Because how you arrive on an idea can be as important as the idea itself. And I discovered this when, when I was... Um, when I was pitching Rise, you know, one of the ways that I got my first customers was was I was I was standing outside of Weight Watchers meetings. I, I would I would stand outside of Weight Watchers meetings as people were walking through the door. I'd be like, "Hey, do you have a moment? I, I just want to share with you this this app." And I give them this like demo, and most people were just like, "No, what?" And and they would kind of walk past. But every once in a while, I get somebody who'd say, "Yeah, sure, I'll take a look at your your app," and I give them a quick demo. And if they if they were engaged, I would ask them to to sign up on the spot. And I, I was always sort of embarrassed by that story because it's just, it's not, it's not very sophisticated. It's, it's like not the Silicon Valley sort of approach of, oh, I ran this, you know, very clever experiment, got these, it's, it's more man on the street type of approach. But that turned out to be the part of the story that really got investors like leaned in. And I was always curious as to why, like, why were they, why, like, why was that, that the part of the story? And I, I think it, to me, it all comes down to this idea of like, it's very rare that people go beyond Google. It's very rare that people get out from behind their desk and get into the field and talk to customers, test drive products, attend, attend certain meetings that they weren't invited to, like, like to really kind of like find insights that just aren't easily Googleable. I jump in and give you another story from your own freaking book. Yeah. Dude, I love your writing. All right, here's here's one. You were going to talk to a company that was going to compete with Fitbit, right? Tracking of people's health. Yeah. Before going into the meeting, you went to usertesting.com. You hired real human beings to test the product and give you feedback. It cost what? I don't remember. I think you said 50 bucks or something like that. You walked into the CEO with insights. And when he said, how did you know it? You could show him the video. This is going beyond Google. It doesn't have to take that much work, that much money, that much time. But man, can you imagine as a CEO, not just hearing a guy spout off, but saying, here, look, let me show you this. All right. Your book is full of great stories like that. Great specific stories to back up your points. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, no, I mean, the other day I was talking to somebody who who had a very similar experience, and you know, she's mom of mom of two. You know, getting back into the getting back into sort of the working world, and she was she was applying for a job at a social media company that 
she did not use, like she was not engaged with that product. Right. But she really, she really wanted the role. And so she had this interview and she was trying to figure out besides like going on the product and like just testing it out, like what else could she do? And what she did was really clever. She interviewed her daughter and all of her daughter's friends about their experience. And then she had them send her screenshots of these moments of delight or these moments where they were like, you know, I wish that they had this. And so when she walked into this interview, this is all over Zoom, she held up her camera and she started sort of scrolling through, swiping through these this gallery of, of insights that she had collected. And the guy that, she, that was interviewing her was so impressed that not only did she get the job, but on the spot, he ends up pulling in someone else from the UX team onto the Zoom so that that person could actually see some of these insights. I mean, talk about just, just, you know, going beyond Google. That's, that's the thing that I've got to keep in mind. Want to talk to somebody, find out what's the next level thing you can do and bring it in. All right. The book is called backable. It's just, it's got seven specific things that you could do, but I feel like if I say seven, it feels too small. It's sevens with nuances and ideas and examples, kind of like what we just did right here with that. Um, what is it? What is that one idea called? The secret? The earned secret. The earned secret. All right. Thank you so much for being on here. I feel like we said everything, right, Sunil? I'm, I'm looking at you again. I, I think, you know what it is? Your face is very expressive and I'm trying to get a sense like, I can see when you're a little disappointed. I can see, I, you've got oh, a man. CEO's personality that you know where you need to go. You're a good speaker. I, I read that you apparently you're a speechwriter or you were a speechwriter for Bill Clinton. Am I right? I did do some speechwriting for Bill yeah. Clinton. Yeah. So like, you don't, you don't strike me as somebody who has patience for a pain in the ass interviewer who's not going to go in the right direction. So I'm watching <laughs> you and you've got a lot to say. I feel like we've got it. No, we got it. And proud of this interview. I am. I, I, I think we had a great conversation. I I really, I really appreciate it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one last thing just to close it out real quick, which is that I I have a new mantra now after reading this book or after writing this book, I should say, uh, which is, which is that the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. (laughs) I don't think we've bored anybody here. Do you think we bored? No, 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 man. I think it was engaging. All right. I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, if you're onboarding people, offboarding people, paying them in the U.S., regardless of where they are, W-2. I didn't even say that if you don't want to hire them because you don't want to deal with the legalities of it, they will actually hire your people for you and pay them. Basically, if you have people at your company, go schedule a call right now with the team over at Rippling like I did. Rippling.com slash Mixergy to get started. Rippling.com slash Mix. I get the name. I guess the name comes from like the rippling effect where you onboard somebody, a letter goes out the way you want it. Then you on, then you get them into the software that you need. Then you make sure that they get paid. I guess that's where the name comes from. Rippling.com slash Mixergy. And of course, if you want to take the ideas that we presented here in this interview or any of your other ones and start a new website, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Even Sunil, who wasn't sure he liked this uh, ad in the middle of a conversation, I could see we turn them around <laughs> not I'm, exactly i'm in i'm in, I'm, in. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going i'm going to the site thank you and go get backable thanks bye